Hello, my modern women. This is your host, Nicole Colantoni, the single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. I think the thing is that it can be very empowering uh, to become comfortable being single and you can end up being less fearful about what's ahead in life. Uh, I don't feel sort of so scared about my future. I imagine, you know, I'm gonna live my life with my husband. But if things don't kind of work out like that, I know I can cope as well. And I know what it's like to live on my own. I know that's not bad. So um, I think it can sort of reduce fears. And you're right, you get to really understand yourself and go, well, what is it I want to bring into my life? What What is it I like doing? So it's not merged. You even understand what food do I like eating? What shows do I like watching? How late do I like to stay up? When do I really like to get out of bed? You can lose the sense of that when you're a couple because it all becomes merged. And if you're merging right from when you're young in your early 20s, that's going to really lead to a different perception of yourself as to if you did a couple of years alone. My modern women, welcome back to our latest guest app. We've talked a lot in previous episodes about how most people would argue that being married with children is still the norm. But our guest this week begs to differ and instead claims that the reality is that more adults are living alone than ever before. She also believes that single people are forging new ways of living happy and fulfilling lives despite continuing to be subject to discrimination and bias about the value of a life. And that's why she wrote a book about it called One, Valuing the Single Life. This book gives an insight into what our guest today claims to be the greatest unspoken demographic shift of our time, the way more and more people are now choosing to be single. And throughout this episode, our guest explains why it's time to finally put an end to outdated ideas about what it means to be single. As our guest today says, the reality is we are all potentially only one moment away from being single. My modern women, I introduce to you the woman who once swam solo around New York and is recognized as a 100 woman of influence in Australia, the extraordinary Claire Payne. Claire, welcome to Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. Thank you for having me. So let's start from the beginning. Tell me about your personal and professional backgrounds and how it led you to write One Valuing the Single Life. Yeah, sure. So, well, um, I'm now over 30. I'm in my mid-40s, but I was uh, single through periods of my 30s. um, And uh, I ended up a single parent, um, sort of, I suppose, a bit unexpectedly uh, in my late 30s. And um, I was really the only person in my social circle that was single with a young child. There's not actually not that many people in that category uh, even if people cho- choose that. And it really got me thinking about um, the, the way we live and what it means to be single and how that relates to how people value you or how people think about uh, whether your life is on track or a success and even your own thoughts about that. And so I sort of thought about it quite deeply in kind of my early um, parenting as a single mother And I got to thinking about how we value people's lives. And I really noticed actually that uh, people don't necessarily value single people's lives as much, which I think is a bit of an injustice. So my background is as a lawyer, interested in the concept of justice and fairness. And just having seen this throughout uh, my professional and personal life, uh, so my professional life's in as a lawyer and in the banking sector, I suppose you consider them quite traditional. And I did notice really a, a preference for people to be coupled or people to be on this path to having what might be called, you know, a nuclear family. Uh, 
And so I sort of got to thinking about that as well, about why people might not be considered leadership material if they're if they're not coupled and um, just being in that category that, that people don't really know as much about or understand, I think, as much about. Yeah, absolutely. So like in your book, you refer to the rise of single people as a new social phenomenon. And like you said, not many people know about this phenomenon. So why do you think it's taking place? Yeah, I think there's a range of uh, reasons about why there's more single people now. A lot of it, I think, is around financial independence. So particularly for women to have your own careers, control of your own money. We know women, for example, have been graduating from law um, more than males since um, the, the late 90s, I think it is. And so that's led to having different choices around your independence and your life choices. Uh, and being able to put off marriage or to make sure it's the the right person. And I think that's um, the the same for men, just a lot more ability to choose, uh, to have careers that take you to other places. And uh, so I think people sort of exercising that choice and because the group gets bigger, it becomes more sort of normalised to be in that group where you're not having children. So decades and decades ago, it may have been unusual to not have children by your mid-20s. Well, now, you know, people wouldn't even think that that's unusual by your mid-30s. So we're, we're shifting these a lot and we have to see women in, the, in their mid-40s. Uh, so I think a lot of it actually has to do with financial independence. So interesting. I mean, you touched on this before, but how does this phenomenon relate to your own life? You mentioned that you're a, a single mom. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so, well, the crazy thing is, so I wrote the book one about valuing single life, and then I got married later that year. But um, I'm still in a bit of an unusual category because I married my neighbour, and we uh, both live in our own houses with our respective children. So we're sort of a little. I feel like I sort of still moonlight a bit in the single parent category because I live with my daughter, uh, but I am married, so I do have that um, emotional support. Interestingly, we don't have one financial thing in common. Um, my husband and I, there's absolutely nothing to, to um, divide up if, if we were to separate. But I think this is the thing you can carve out your own concept of what is a good life, which is what I was trying to get at in my book, that a good life can be the life that's right for you. Um, it does potentially hurt for people to feel like their life isn't accepted. And of course, we've seen that with um, the same-sex marriage debate and all the progress we're making on um, other communities that are, that are minorities. Uh, but I think, yeah, there is this ability to sort of carve out your own life. In terms of relationships, I'm probably what they call like a serial monogamist. Um, and uh, so I'm not necessarily like uh, a prolific dater. Uh, and I noticed that one of uh, a, a woman that I used to have a column next to hers in the AFR and she she went on a, like 300 and something dates until she found her um, husband, whereas I'm the opposite. I just uh, went to my neighbor's house for dinner for about three years and then we ended up getting married. <laughs> so, but it's whatever's right for you really. Absolutely. It's so interesting that you said um, the year that you published your book, you married your husband. The week that I launched the Single at 30 podcast, I started dating my now boyfriend. So the world works in mysterious ways. It does. It's very strange. And I was a bit embarrassed actually, um, because when I wrote the book, I was single and actually I got married. Uh, I think we got married four months after kissing. Like we had never even... Uh, being together, <laughs> but we were kind of already in love because we were friends. Um, 
for for a few years beforehand. But um, yeah, you just take your own path. But it, I'm still a massive advocate for understanding um, single people's lives, uh, single parents, particularly. So my husband has three children, and you know we've gone into this blended family category. Uh, which a lot of single people might end up in. So they may end up um, step-parenting or having some type of role in other children's lives. And, and that sort of needs a whole lot of understanding as well. So I think, you know, the blended family and different ways of doing that is is still part of this broader category, which is really what I was trying to understand when you're considered to be outside the norm, the norm being some kind of coupled um, relationship with children where you're all in, in the one house and sharing everything. Yeah, it's so interesting. Without prying, I am curious, how does your dynamic work? Well, some people who've been married a long time say this would be absolutely ideal because, um, you know, you get rid of some of the things in terms of having our own house. Uh, you would know a lot about people talking about the chore wars where they get very, you know, irritated by someone not pulling their weight in their own house or not helping with the children. And I suppose our arrangement uh, and also something that single people have is that you're actually just in charge of your own life. Your your house and your upkeep of your house uh, is your own. And sometimes that might feel like a burden because it's a, it's a lot to look after as one person, but also you're not looking after someone else. And so there's none of that kind of begrudging stuff that's that, that can be in a relationship. Um, there's not those sort of more maybe mundane aspects, which could be fun sharing, but at the same time, you know, there's more privacy, I suppose. You can sort of take as long as you want to get ready or, you know, have a really long shower or whatever it is and you that that's just your own business so I think there are sort of advantages there and you have to um make an effort to see each other or to communicate uh and I think that can lead to kind of better time together because you see each other when you want to so there are advantages this is a category of um sort of uh, not single life but coupled on where it's called living apart together and I did talk about this as well in my book, especially people who are post-divorce, they do look at different types of coupling. Um, and, you know, there's uh, some people who have written interesting things about different types of relationships you might have in different stages of life. And they call them almost like contract marriages where maybe in um, a certain part of life you really want to have children and you share that with someone and then you might want someone for company or um, companionship later in life. So these different kinds of relationships that have different expectations around them uh, that uh, mean that you are not necessarily having what previously would have been considered normal. But there are many people that end up in the category of single uh, that don't choose to be there, like widow or um, someone leaves you or someone's um, unfaithful. And so it's a really big mix of reasons why people are in there, which is why I don't kind of like these sort of blanket labels and sometimes people just revert to stereotypes which you know and there might be some truth to some of these stereotypes but it's just completely untrue for other people that are also in that category yeah it's interesting what you're saying because uh, my stepdad he's not with my mom anymore but I still refer to him as my stepdad has repartnered and they live separately and that suits them and they have no intention in changing that anytime soon so like you said once you've had perhaps your first marriage or just later in life, people looking at different sort of scenarios that suit their lifestyle. And in many ways, it works better than living under the, the one roof. Yeah. And I think the financial 
independence um, and positioning can allow people to do that. I think it can get very hard uh, the less financially able you are. So so that can that can be difficult. And so you get people who end up in a relationship that they prefer not to be in or it's very difficult to get out. But definitely if you're at that other end, there are opportunities to, to live a life that, that suits and, and it could actually be a lot better. And I tried to look at some of the, you know, there are positives and negatives to every scenario. And that's what I think is really important to understand. There are some good things about being single and I don't think they're spoken about enough, but there are some challenging aspects as well. And we do hear about some of those, but there are some challenging ones. But it's the same with being coupled or being married. There are difficulties there as well uh, and there are advantages. So it's just a matter, and I think for me, when I was in the category of single mother, just really trying to look at, well, what are the good things? And um, to not actually always think the grass is greener somewhere else and trying to make the most of your situation because it's not necessarily better in a different scenario. Absolutely. I think it's genius though, living next door to your partner. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because you get that time away, but you're also just right next to each other. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Very lucky. Now we can't move though. <laughs> <laughs> so when I read your book, I was blown away by how one person households have become the most common type of household type in places like Canada. And it was also interesting to read that at the time you wrote the book, families with children accounted for less than 50% of households in Australia. And yet couples with children are still portrayed as the norm. Why do you think this is? Yeah, I think it's really uh, interesting that we uh, default to the idea of family, especially when politicians talk to us, the mums and dads, and to look at how many people actually uh, aren't having children. And so, I mean, we've got a category of people uh, not finding a partner till later and so not having the opportunity to have children. Uh, But you've also got people who are choosing not to for reasons like, for example, worried about the planet and climate change and choosing not to bring children into the world. Uh, It becoming more socially acceptable so people can go, actually, do I think I'm really going to be a good parent or is that how I want to spend my my life? Is that what my life is about? Uh, So I think it's become more socially acceptable not to. You've always got the category of people who would love to be a parent and it hasn't worked out either through um, fertility issues or or not finding the right partner at the right time. Uh, But it it is a growing category and I suspect it it will continue to grow. And I think also there are are other ways to bring children into your life. So, you know, uh, people who actually work with children don't necessarily want to have children of their own they or people who come from big families and have a lot of nieces and nephews they can get a very fulfilling relationship um i think as my friends have teenagers i think gosh actually if people who don't have children listen to parents of teenagers they probably think actually why do i want to do that (laughs) and um so i don't think parents necessarily sell it very well sometimes because there's a lot of a lot of negative press and like I became a mother later. I was 37, I think when I had Betty. And uh, so I felt really fortunate, really lucky. I was like, I actually, I didn't know if I was going to end up having a child and I wanted to. So, uh, and I, and I've only got one child. So I have just been so grateful uh, and it puts me in a different type of category. It's not as much of the 
drudgery, whereas I think I, I listened to some commentary of other people around children and, and how hard it is and how they don't get me time and all that. And it's just a really different way of looking at it. And I do sometimes find some of the sort of older mums or mums who just really wanted it and were sort of surprised and happy to get it actually um, maybe don't have as much of that sort of negative commentary around it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm almost 33 now, so I'm watching a lot of my friends uh, become new moms. And like you said before, I think it has a lot to do with your financial circumstances, the sort of partner that you have. But certainly when I look at the sleep deprivation and how much work goes into it while you're juggling a career, it's the best contraception ever because I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put it off until I know that I'm 100% ready, Uh, even though I'm not entirely sure that day will ever come. (laughs) But you're lucky because you have um, your partner's children as well. Like, Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing about life, I suppose. You just don't know um, the way it's going to work out. And I always wanted a family of six because I came from a family of six. And it's so funny because I'd always had my passwords for my various like devices of, you know, like a word and six. And even when I just had my one child, I'd I'd still be doing this six. And it's so bizarre that I ended up marrying someone with three children. And now it's the six of us. So yeah, it's, I just wouldn't have expected that because that was, I got married after I was 40. Um, and so, yeah, it's just funny the, the way it works and yeah, being a, um, going into step parenting is interesting as well. And I suppose for my husband, Tim and I, it's a bit more diluted because we don't sort of, live in our um, houses with each other's children. We just come together to eat and to, um, and we go between the houses. So we pretty much parent our own children. We talk about the kids a lot together, but we actually sort of parent separately. Yeah, that's incredible. So I found it interesting that women in particular represent more than half of the people living alone in Australia. Why do you think this is the case for women more so than men? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting to look into the cohort of single women. So there are the younger ones, uh, but there are also a lot of older um, single women. So women post-divorce are actually less likely to get remarried. Um, so some women, especially in the older age groups, older than me in their 50s, 60s, 70s, can feel relieved actually of the burden of having raised the family and um, looked after a husband. Some people find they have to look after a husband. Maybe they've even nursed a nursed a husband and, and they're a widow and they don't necessarily aspire to getting married again. It's, it's not really something they want to do and quite enjoy the independence of um, living uh, as a single person. So there's that category that that's quite big in there as well. There's single um, mothers. It can be hard to to meet people when you've got young kids and try and bring someone into their life can feel um, like risky uh, to, to upset a dynamic if you've been through a divorce. And then you've got the sort of younger cohort who are thinking differently and, and exercising different decisions. And there's definitely more single uh, women in that category who are putting off um, living with someone or getting married and, and and children and getting all their things in place, for example, like getting their own house and and paying that off. Women own um, their house are more likely to own their house than a man. They're more likely to have their mortgage under control. Uh, so you know, 
where there really are some myths to bust in there about about women and managing money and and being responsible. Women are less likely to be caught out by um, addictions like gambling, which can really be a drain on money as well. So I think um, also there's sort of some caution in terms of people who are the children of divorced parents. Uh, so really thinking about uh, whether marriage, the marriage that might be for them, whether it's right for them. You know, so one of my friends whose parents were divorced when she was young, she went through, you know, potential marriage counselling before getting married, you know, to really work out, is this right? And I'm not sure that if her parents hadn't been divorced, whether she would have done that. So more caution potentially to make sure it's right rather than just getting married. It's so interesting because I believe that women, particularly women who have been married before, are so much more independent after their first partner compared to men. This is purely based on observation, but I just feel like men are so quick to repartner. But then the women that I've observed in my life are just loving their second life and their independence. And they have like this really strong network of women in their life and they don't feel the need to repartner. You know, they might be happy to have a companion in one form or another, but in terms of that commitment, living with another person again, that doesn't seem to be a priority for a lot of the women I've observed in my life. Yet for men, it just seems so different. I don't know what the statistics on that would are, but it would be interesting to know. Yeah, the statistics do support it. So women are actually more likely to initiate divorce and are less likely to couple after and men couple quicker. So that that is a thing. Um, and, you know, I, I there's a whole probably range of, range of reasons, uh, but I think a big one is the uh, childcare sort of not burden, but responsibility potentially changes it. Um, often you'll find the woman stays in the family home and with the children and the father has less access, not necessarily saying that's right either. That can be terribly distressing for, for the father. But um, yeah, that's probably a factor affecting the, the recoupling. Um, it can also be different, difficult with children to introduce new partners and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, mothers are, are, are conscious of that and it's hard to find the time to sort of keep that separate. So, yeah, I, th I think there are a range of reasons, but I suspect over time it will just even out. I also think, like you said, a lot of women are just like done with having to take care of an extra person. So they just enjoy that, like newfound freedom of being on their own in a sense. Yeah. And I think people can sort of notice that it depends sort of who you might recouple with. So, you know, I recoupled with someone who'd been living as a single dad. So he was always capable, but, you know, had been managing his own life. That might be different if it's someone who just jumps from one marriage to another and um, has been looked after and has never sort of done anything for themselves. But you could probably have women like that as well, because there are sort of men that do everything and, and you know, carry along their partner. So it can sort of go either way. Uh, maybe some personality types are more likely to uh, want to recouple quicker. Absolutely. So in your book, you touch on how the rise of singles and living solo has many positive implications. What are some of the positives? Yeah, so the positives, um, I think, that are kind of interesting is that a single life can be more connected. So people um, think of single as being associated with being lonely. And because um, single people are more likely to live alone, they sort of confuse alone and lonely. When actually, if you look into the uh, research and the stats around um, people's well-being, actually 
single people make more effort with social connections. They make more effort with family and therefore they are more connected and less likely to be lonely. Lonely, people can be very lonely inside marriages. So the research says that actually there can be extreme loneliness if you're in a marriage where um, you're not understood or you feel like you've been taken advantage of. The other thing is that you can have better health uh, and they've got longitudinal studies uh, that look at the health of single women right up to 70s and 80s who actually have better health uh, because they're able to get out and do their walking and meet with their friends and they go out to the theatre and they do all these things that are actually really good for your health. Being connected is good for your health. Sometimes having a partner or being in a marriage can be um, can shrink your circles rather than expand them. You know, they don't like that friend or they don't like your family, and it can actually make your world smaller. Whereas single people actually make more of an effort to to keep their life full. They also are big contributors to the cultural lives of our cities. Uh, you'll find in the biggest cities the highest concentrations of single people. They are the ones with the theatre subscriptions, etc. That that really are keeping those institutions going. Um, along with volunteering. So they're the more likely to volunteer, uh, which again brings that connection. So I think just looking at actually, uh, there, there are some real positives and, and really some myths about uh, what single life might be like, that people are sort of lonely and desperate and looking for love. And it's interesting because there are so many people that are single that aren't looking, you know, they're not sort of on the hunt, which is what the sort of cliche is. Yeah, I was one of those people for years and people couldn't understand it, but I was just enjoying my time on my own. And like you said, connecting with, you know, my friends, my family, and just being out there exploring who I was and the city that I was living in. But yeah, I mean, being single gets such bad PR. (laughs) And it's interesting because according to your book, governments around the world don't seem to be all that positive about the rise of singles. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, it's this way. It gets a bit complicated because it intertwines with um, traditions, uh, particularly around religion, uh, and so there is this sort of general idea that the traditional family is good for society, producing children, and those children being able to work and um, look after the society as as we we move and get older. Uh, and so therefore there are preferences and, and in America there's sort of so many preferences in terms of tax concessions that advantage uh, couples over singles, same in the UK. Uh, here, for example, you know, you might feel uh, a bit hard done by because people are able to um, combine their super or make extra contributions or people um get two-for-one offers or they buy in bulk uh, food, uh, they go on holidays and you get a single supplement. It's much more expensive to go on the same holidays as a single person as it is a family that might get all their kids eating free or um, food. You can't buy a half loaf of bread. You have to buy a big loaf of bread, um, things like that. And some you know, other societies, so I noticed in London when I was there like in the early 2000s, they already had these small loaves and like little packages of food that were really accommodating towards, you know, single people. It's taken a long time to get that kind of thing here, uh, which is just sort of seems subtle, but actually that does make it hard to sort of shop and eat well as, as a single person that to, you know, to go out to the supermarket and just buy each day rather than having to buy these big sort of packets. Um, so there, there are these little things. And of course, if you're living as a couple, you basically get to split your bills in the house. You might get to live in a nicer house. You join your money together and 
share a mortgage. That is different when you're single. You've got all those costs completely to yourself, which is obviously one of the disadvantages in a way of, of being single is not being able to join your wealth and get into the property market together, which is why there are some single people who are actually buying houses with their friends, which you know could actually be safer option um, than buying with a partner anyway. That's how they're getting into the market. So I think we can, every disadvantage, you can probably work out a way around it. And of course, you have single people who choose to have a flatmate or um, choose to live in share accommodation. Uh, and, and that's another option. But I sort of wrote about in my book, I'd be really interested in people thinking about the whole idea of how we design our communities differently. Like, especially as a single parent, I thought, God, why can't I live in this sort of like a ski chalet that um, has communal areas where I could go to my, I have a privacy of my own sort of area and then go into shared areas and childcare is connected. And I think, you know, we'll sort of get to that. I have seen some commentary on this type of accommodation developing, which is a bit more like a sophisticated boarding house um, that actually could provide a more supportive environment for um, all parts of the spectrum from young people to old to the parents. That's so interesting because what's that saying? It takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. feel like modern societies move so far away from that. And it's like to the disadvantage to the child, you know, and to the parents and the families because, yeah, it's just that community feel is so important when you're trying to raise somebody and have that support. Yeah, exactly. And one of the, uh, when I did my research around single parenting, because um, single parents can feel very worried about whether they're doing the right thing by their child, even when they're choosing to leave a relationship or forced to, uh, or whether you have a child by yourself by choice. Um, and I looked into the research of, about um, single parenthood and, and whether it's, because the, the commentary is that it's bad for the child and you should raise a child in, in a couple. Uh, but actually there are some advantages. And one, just touching on your point, is about intergenerational living. So a single parent is more likely to engage the grandparents to have an active part in the children's life. And that is really good for the child and for the grandparents and for the parent. So that intergenerational is really good and, and single parents are more likely to do that. They also get a very close relationship with their uh, children and, and there are definitely benefits to that. A lot of the negatives around single parenting really have to do with poverty it's, uh, and um, you know financial troubles not so much uh, have to do with single parenting being bad. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a bit of work there. Governments definitely um, haven't wanted single parents because traditionally that category was people who were at the um, lower socioeconomic end um, and governments have felt like they're a burden. And so um, it's very unfortunate because at the same time we have all these campaigns around domestic violence and respect and standing up, but uh, if that means leaving your partner and becoming a single parent and a single parent has um, all these negative connotations, that's quite a difficult position to put someone in, which is why I think we have to really get a better understanding about what it is to be a single parent. Uh, the successful, you know, um, examples where people do really well, and we do hear this every so often, a lot of prime ministers and presidents come from single parent families and they absolutely um, Lord and praise their single parents for raising them, particularly single mothers. So, you know, there are examples out there uh, and I think we probably need to talk about them more because otherwise it can be subject to really sort of negative stereotyping. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I read a lot into this as well and read that 
yeah, it has nothing really like the happiness and welfare of the child has nothing to do with the fact that they're raised by one parent. It's the happiness of that parent. And that's dependent on the support that parent has and the financial background that parent comes from. But it's interesting because it's really hard for single parents to adopt still, isn't it? So I wonder if that will change. Yeah. So I think we'll have to, you know, we're sort of still continuing to I suppose, break down and get a more um, nuanced understanding of, of the different scenarios. And, and we've had to do that with, with same-sex relationships and um, looking at what is the child getting uh, and realising actually there is nothing to, to worry about here and um, individuals are, are capable. So I think we've come a, we've come a long way, uh, but there still is, yeah, there still is a way to go. Definitely. So let's talk about what Bella DiPolo likes to call the wallpaper of contemporary life. How would you describe this term? Yeah, well, I think wallpaper is probably really apt. So being coupled and being married is the wallpaper, as in uh, it's around, it's difficult to get off. Uh, sometimes you might not notice it and sometimes you notice it completely. Um, so it's still sort of assumed as the norm. And that, that's the difficult thing because there are actually so many people who are outside the category, but it's just assumed. And uh, I think we, we want it to be that, you know, there is no sort of wallpaper and uh, people can just live their own life without feeling like they're outside um, this, this norm idea. Definitely. Why do you think so many people still feel pressure to conform to this norm when evidence suggests this isn't really what people want anymore? Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting because a lot of the research around what's good for children uh, and what's good for the society has actually been backed by religious groups and governments that have an agenda where they they want um, these kind of uh, nuclear families to, to be dominant. And so the research base has been stronger on that side. Uh, also, um, a lot of the research around uh, single people has been warped by clustering divorced people in, in rather than having them in the, in the married category. So there's a bit around research and therefore the messaging that goes down into society. And some of our loudest voices uh, come from the sort of maybe people who are in a more traditional category uh, uh, that might either be religious or heads of institutions and have traditional um, ideas. But, you know, and it's all, it's sort of, it gets complicated to talk about because just because you're single doesn't mean you're not, you can't be religious as well. Like I remember one of my friends, because like I grew up Catholic and she's like, um, I, I sort of feel like a bad Catholic. I can still be Catholic and be a single mother. I mean, she wasn't a, a single mother by choice. Her husband left her. Um, but, you know, these things have to sort of coexist. Uh, and, but some loud voices uh, and certain sort of political agendas have, have backed the nuclear family and uh, people feel that. And I think sometimes as well, people who are married uh, carry that and want people to be a part of that group. Uh, it's a very easy thing to slip into to want to find you a partner or to think something's wrong with you uh, and want you to join their category. Again, it's a bit like parenthood. Sometimes they're not necessarily selling it to you. You're thinking, oh, um, I don't necessarily want what you've got, but uh, they want you to join their group because they've made that decision. 
whereas I think people are sort of going, well, I'm just going to see what's right for me. It's so true. It's like if you don't join their group, they somehow feel threatened. You know, it's interesting. But you mentioned you didn't get married until you were 40. Did you feel that pressure ever, particularly being a single mom? Yeah, I was never really set on getting married uh but I'm a I'm like I'm a romantic a hopeless romantic I do have an idea of the one so I I sort of in that category but not necessarily around marriage I even though I'm a lawyer I'm like mm, contracting someone's feelings uh so I was a bit surprised I ended up getting married in a way I always did want you know a, a, a long-term relationship uh but I think for my situation, marriage felt right because we wanted to signal to the kids that this was permanent and that this this relationship was different. Um, so, you know, I just sort of have, have gone with it and evolved with it, but I didn't necessarily dream of marriage uh, when I was younger. Interesting. When I read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, as well as your book, I was shocked to learn that most people in positions of power or leadership are coupled up. Why do you think this is? Yeah, uh, well, it comes down to the stereotypes around uh, single people that are negative, so that you're childlike, that you're not responsible, that there's something wrong with you, that you've been rejected. Well, all those qualities are not going to bode well for a leadership position where it's about trust, being responsible, being in control. And so, therefore, it's been seen that if you're going to be a political leader, for example, that that you should be married because people can associate with that. Um, I think Gordon Brown was one of the first uh, British prime ministers who who wasn't uh, married, and they considered, you know, they had to have old people working on it to to work out how they were going to make him relatable. It's absolutely ridiculous um, because we know how many people are single. It doesn't mean they're not family oriented because. Actually, we know that single people are more likely to make more effort with their family. They look after their parents in old age more than their siblings do. So it's actually sort of ironic that they get pulled apart as not being able to relate to their um, family. Whereas we had example in New South Wales with our Premier Gladys Berejiklian, who was single for you know much of her sort of leadership position. And she always said, my family is so important to me. Her sisters and her parents were really important to her, but she had to emphasise that in a way that other leaders don't have to. They just sort of have this showcase family. Um, of course, we're, we're having the same um, situation at the moment because we've got uh, the contender for um, our next ele election, um, Anthony Albanese, who uh, is a separated parent with um, a new um, girlfriend. And so that's a different category being presented to us as a leadership position. So I think we are getting these. And of course, we had Julia Gillard um, uh, as well, which, which, you know, she got a lot of um, really sort of she had, a, she had a tough time around her status of being single, but we are getting these examples coming through. That's in politics, which has sort of got its own distinct things and people do a whole bunch of research on politics in itself, but it also goes over to the business community, which can be very rigid around what the idea of a leader and a responsible CEO is. Even, for example, in investment banking, if someone is going through a divorce, it will affect the share price of the company that person is a CEO of because they think, you know, it causes a certain amount of disruption and the divorce is going to lead to them selling stock. So there, there is this idea, you know, of needing stability and stability being coupled, which is kind of ironic because we know that the divorce rates are really bad. So it's actually almost more stable <laughs> to be single. It's so interesting. 
And Bella DePaula talks a lot about how married people have a lot more benefits than single people do. I know you touched on this as well as in your book, but what do those benefits look like? Yeah, so I think one of the big ones, especially in Australian society, probably has been around property and being able to to buy property uh, together. And that has been a lot harder uh, for single people. And a lot of people's wealth is based on property in Australia. And that probably continues to be a difficult thing. And I think that's where um, looking to different models about um, what investing and accumulating uh, wealth and maybe investing with friends um, to, to buy properties is one of the things that could potentially um, break that disadvantage down. We've gone a long way in Australia to break down um, some of those biases that previously existed. So, you know, um, in my mum's generation, you can only just get a bank account. You can only just get your own name on things. So we, we have come a long, a long way from from there and we've broken down those ones that are, that are really obvious. What we now have to do is really break down the sort of societal um, stereotypes and negativity that can, I think, have just as big an impact as those um, other factors because it can lead to how someone feels about their own self-worth. And that's what I was really interested in is what does it mean anyway to have a good life and um, how do we judge people? And so that that's what I'm interested in now, that, that component of it. Yeah. And you touch on the pain of ostracism in your book. Have you had experience with this before? Yeah, it's interesting because actually on ABC radio uh, yesterday, they were talking about how pe single people can get ostracized, uh, particularly uh, on divorce. And it was about how you don't necessarily get invited along to couple things. Or if you get coupled, you realize, oh gosh, now I get invited to all this other stuff. And they go, oh, we must go out, you know. And it was saying that actually uh, friendships when you're single end up just being with the one part of the couple. So you might just be friends with the wife and you just go do things. People might be scared to invite you over to a dinner party because they will think that you're going to steal someone's husband or someone's partner, um, that you're a predatory or something, uh, that you've got better things to do. So you could get left out completely because they're like, oh, you'll be out having fun. Oh, no, you know, not necessarily I'd like to come visit you, but, you know, that kind of thing about presumptions about your life or people who complain about feeling uh, like their life is just fodder for people to have entertainment, like, oh, tell me about your life. It's so interesting. And feeling like you're having to give all these details to keep someone else entertained. They go, oh, my life's boring. It's just, you know, me with the kids or, or whatever. Um, so all that can lead to feeling a bit kind of like, oh, not, not very well understood. And there's a, um, a, a psychologist, Hugh McKay, who I really love his work, and he has a book called The Good Life, but he talks about really it's all about understanding and trying to understand each other. And I work in the field of ethics and business ethics, which is really like trying to look at the different points of view. And I think if we can do that more just you know, get to understand other people's situations so you can be more sensitive to it because it's going to be different. Some people, um, you know, probably they may want you to to invite, you know, they you would invite them over to the kids' things, you know. You, they do want to go to the kids' birthday parties. Other people don't. They go, oh, that makes me feel a bit sad because I don't have that. So but you've got to understand that that person, that friend that you've got and understand, well, what's right for them. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say they get like 
interrogated when they're out with their partnered friends. And I remember so often when I would go to dinner parties with my partnered friends, they would just want all the details about my single life. But you never ask your friends in relationships what their sex life is like or what they're doing with their partner on a Saturday night. It's, yeah. And, and then they can't really share it because they, I, I did look into this. There's like a kind of silence that has to come over a, a marriage to respect it in a way, um, to respect your partner. So it gets a lot quieter in terms of what you share. And that can be out of respect. And the same can happen um, when you're parenting teenagers. For example, you share less because they've got their own privacy, whereas people share a lot about babies because it's, you know, it's just about the sort of their routine. So yeah, there there's sort of less sharing, but if you're still sharing everything, you can feel a bit kind of like used or that you were just some kind of entertainment. Um, so you need to have the trust there to feel like it's it's okay to share and that that it's just not going to be your life's just not going to be passed along to for entertainment value. Absolutely. And it's so interesting that single people are seen as a threat because I've seen in my own life that a lot of partners have actually swapped. No, <laughs> so yeah. the threat doesn't end just <laughs> once you become partnered up. I know that's where um, that's where it's sort of just very unfair, I think. And I uh, also had chapters on single men in in my book because uh, it's not just sort of unique to uh, women the issues around being single. So men also suffer under this stereotype that he's um, a playboy. Uh, he hasn't grown up. He's a child. He's a, you know, a Peter Pan um, or he's a, um, a pedophile or a molester. Like this, this type of thing, um, he's a hermit. All these things have been attached very particularly to men and people would rarely ask um, a single male to, to babysit their child or if they're passing a baby around a room, they, they might just skip the, the man. And that can all be really ostracizing and offending as well. The same thing can happen to a single woman, like less likely to go, oh, you just hold the baby. They'd probably look for another mum to do it. And it's like, they're, they're no less capable of holding a baby. Um, and you that, can happened, know, that yeah. happened to me all the time. Like if I picked up one of my friend's children and then they the child started crying, it was almost like a reflection of me, you know, as opposed to, oh, your baby's just like crying because it's hungry or needs a nap, you know, or it's diaper change. I have felt self-conscious with that as well. Uh, Self-conscious holding the baby uh, because, yeah, it'll be some type of reflection on you. And and my um, husband comes from, he's the youngest of 12 children and he has over 30 nieces and nephews. And he's just so capable capable and confident with children but I see sometimes they cry sometimes they don't they might vomit on him and it's it's all okay it just sort of brushes it all off but I think oh I just can't imagine a sort of single person who hasn't had a child sort of feeling that confident to to be like that and a lot of it is around the perceptions uh and some of it is just perceptions and maybe I'm a bit more self-conscious and aware of like what people might think than others are um so yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting and it can be difficult. Definitely. So in your book, you talk about how when you were on the board of a large not-for-profit organization, you never shared any of your breakups, single periods or new relationships. Is this because of the way single people were perceived, what we were just discussing? Yeah, so I think, you know, in some ways I um, had an idea about what they might think of me uh, and it was just sort of reasonably traditional organization. And it, I was surrounded by people that were coupled and um, in these traditional scenarios. So I already felt just different by not being in that. 
uh, and uh, it was it's a charity for children. So, um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I just decided not to share that aspect of my life. And I think, oh, it's probably, you know, not the best decision because it can lead to more isolation and, and not everyone is judging judging you. And I, I suppose I just felt a bit conscious of it. And maybe it's because my professional life also in, um, you know, investment banking was a bit like that. Um, people would get divorced, the guys, and, and remarry sort of straight away. There there really wasn't many people who, who were in the single category at, at that time. And, um, yeah, I found in, in the leadership roles it was just sort of an expectation that uh, that was the way your life would go and you'd meet these sort of points at certain um, age. And uh, I was pushing outside of that norm. Yeah. So if you could go back in time, would you behave the same way or do you think you're more open about it now? Yeah, I think I've been as open as I can be to be comfortable. Um, so I, I don't think like I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm private enough, but you know, I'm a bit of a one-on-one person. If I'm talking to someone, they'll understand more about my life. Um, not an overshare, but I'm not an under, like I'm not cagey. So I've just sort of navigated what must have been comfortable for me. Uh, I would probably bring less self-consciousness to it if I could, because I think people are very understanding. Uh, I actually think it gets easier as you get older. So now I'm in my mid forties. I've noticed actually so much more understanding about different scenarios. Like if you've got a difficult child or a difficult relationship, or you've got certain concerns that there's much more empathy and understanding as you get older, because by then a lot of people's lives haven't gone perfectly. Um, so I think there's this kind of idea about perfect and that people might sort of be aspiring to it or living it. And that drops away as people see that life can actually be quite difficult and just turn out not the way you expected. Um, and it's often can be quite outside of your control. Absolutely. Were you nervous to publish your book? Um, I really wasn't actually, which is funny, but I just become so comfortable with the, um, with my category, which is crazy because then I, then I got married, but I, and I really did have a lot of time at home, um, as a single parent. And so I had a lot of time to think a lot of time to research and, um, to think really deeply about what it meant to have a good life, what my life was about. And so I just felt really sort of sure of my position. Um, and I still do, uh, as in about what's important um and and what it means and and it comes back to those things about being connected and even though in a way becoming a single parent can shrink your world but it can sort of shrink it in a good way um to become very you know create your own stability uh and so uh, yeah I wasn't too nervous I was more nervous about getting saying you know telling people that I'd ended up getting married which seemed really crazy (laughs) And it just occurred to me that the whole time you were researching and writing your book, you were actually falling in love with your now husband. Yeah, which I sort of, yeah, I I didn't really realize or sort of know completely. Um, and uh, yeah, the way I, I went overseas for a work trip and I sort of thought about him all, all the way there on the plane and I sort of thought, gosh. And so when I arrived, I was in South Africa and I, I texted him and I said, I've just got a question for you to think about. and. Um, it was morning there and nighttime Friday night here and in Australia. And, uh, I said, could this be love question mark? 
And he just wrote back straight away and said, I love you, Claire. And I was like, oh my gosh. So then I had another like week of this work trip where we had this love, love declaration, we call it, that was just sitting out there and we'd never kissed, never touched each other. And yeah, suddenly we declared that we were in love with each other. <laughs> so by the time I arrived home, we were like, yeah, we're going to join our lives together. Um, that so it was is quite funny. Yeah. So romantic. That's the dream. It's like a weird Jane Austen thing. Yeah. Yes. And we had all the kids, so we had to wait for everyone to go to sleep until he walked over at, at nighttime. And it was like, hi. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely crazy. And the chemistry was immediate. Yeah. Was the chemistry immediate? Yeah. Wow. I know, which is so amazing. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it was just bizarre. It's an unexpected love story. So, yeah, um, that's the thing, though. I think this is one of the positives about being single is that life can absolutely change. Like my life absolutely changed um, uh, for the better. And um, it's just that's what the possibility is there, whereas sometimes people who are in a marriage or um, coupled it's not going to be some big thing that, that can change. They're going to have to be really active to change everything. And that's one of the things that actually, yes, your life could change um, if you are uh, single and that's exciting. But what I loved about your book was how you said that just because you're in a relationship doesn't mean that you're far from becoming single yourself, you know? So it's like at any point your status can change. I know that's what I find so interesting about people who have um, such a negative attitude to single people or use these cliches like, oh, they're on the hunt, they're going to, um, it must be so horrible, you know, she's desperate or this and that. It's like, gosh, why are people so confident they're not going to end up in this category? So confident, um, not just infidelity, but but being widowed or things outside of your control. And I'm like, um, it's a bit, I mean, I actually think of it similar with, with um, COVID at the moment. It's like you're just one diagnosis away from being in that vulnerable category. Uh, people are so confident that they're, you know, you leave, leave all the vulnerable people behind. It's like, well, gosh, we're only, you know, you just, we don't know with life uh, how it's going to sort of roll out. So true. Let's talk about modern dating culture. <laughs> yeah, mine is not a modern dating story, but uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on it, though? Yeah, so I mean, I have not done online dating, um, but you know, I, I suppose being a writer, um, I've got sort of. I just thought, gosh, I'd get found out on there. Uh, it's just, it's not me, but. I, I think it's, I think I've had friends that have got extremely successful, happy relationships from, from online dating. I, I definitely don't see it as a negative. Um, I think actually there's also people seeking companionships and different, different things from online dating. It's not always relationships. Um, and we've seen that in terms of different kind of apps coming through that are trying to focus in on relationships or even like, so Hinge, for example, an app that you're trying to get off because you actually want to be coupled versus ones where you want company or someone for a night. And so I think it's starting to tailor to all the different types of things that people might want. And, and I, I've even had friends who've used sort of traditional dating services that you pay quite a lot and it's, you know, five dates with people that are a dating agency actually tries to match you properly with 
I think all these things are, are really interesting. I even think arranged marriages are interesting. When I lived in London, one of my colleagues was um, going through a process of his parents trying to arrange um, a marriage within the Indian community where he would actually go to a whole conference that was all around speed dating, but the people were all vetted so that so that they were considered appropriate. And I, I think it's interesting because um, there's no sort of perfect answer about what creates the good relationship, the right relationship for you. And so I think it is worth exploring all the different options. Um, but of course, just trying to sort of stay safe within that. Uh, one of the things that I always felt more comfortable for and sort of hoped for was that other people might introduce me to someone, <laughs> um, you know, and think about me and go, oh, maybe you'd like this person because I can see these things in common. I still think that is a good way to meet people. It's a bit like they're vetted, you know. Um, I I think people don't make enough effort to introduce people and to think about their single friend. Um, I try to invite people along and get different groups together to do that. I'm probably more conscious than others and I think actually sometimes single people just are interested in having a bigger circle. It's not that they want to be set up definitely with that person, but meeting someone different can lead to a different social circle which can open up to other kind of people and opportunities that bring it, come into their life. It's so true. I was single for so long. And when my friends would like express concern, I'd be like, well, why aren't you setting me up with anyone? You know, yeah. like there's not enough of that taking place. And it reached the point where I started to seriously be envious of arranged marriages. I was like, I get it. Like it's oh. tough out there. You know, like I'd rather put like, put the burden on somebody else to just set me up. And then I actually signed up to a co-working space, which is where I met my current boyfriend. And he came recommended, like the office manager of the co-working space just spoke so highly of him. And he's a super like reserved person. I wouldn't have ordinarily been attracted to somebody who was so shy and like reserved, but because he became, he came recommended, it just felt right. I was open to it. So yeah, definitely having somebody who can sort of almost like refer somebody to you helps, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's definitely a way. And I've always thought, and, and my approach was to bring into my life, the things that I want to do, pursue those things I want to do. So I'm a marathon swimmer, uh, keep up my ocean swimming. I belong to a book club. I mean, a, a lot of the things I like doing, like I do botanical drawing book club. I now do acrobatics. I, everyone's over 70 and mostly female. But um, so I wasn't necessarily going to meet anyone doing those. Uh, but I was just pursuing things I really like, which makes me happier, which makes me feel fulfilled, which makes me bring a better person when I go out socializing. So I always think people should actually just you know, do the things that, that make you feel good. And I do, I mean, if you're a bit of like trust in the universe, um, you know, it, it hopefully will happen if you want it to happen. Do you believe younger generations have become too picky? No, <laughs> I hate when people say people are too picky. I think, gosh, you know, what do you want them to do? Be in a relationship with someone that they don't, aren't attracted to or don't like? Um, I, I mean, of course, I think it, it, I do kind of, I would cringe if someone had a big long list of, of what they want in their partner, but I think you can sort of have an idea and try and will that in, but and have a bit of flexibility around it. 
But I, I think you need to break into what they're being picky about. I mean, you could be picky as in, you know, I, I don't want someone to, to bring in um, some really horrible um, <laughs> emotional traits that are going to be really destructive. But no, I think on the whole, no, not too picky. Interesting. So do you believe in settling for Mr. Good Enough ever? I don't. I don't think we should settle for Mr. Good Enough. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think anything is going to be absolutely perfect. And I think the more sort of firm ideas are, you have around what your life's going to look like or what this sort of, if you have a, an ideal person, um, that, then that can be troublesome. But I do think you just it needs to be right. And so this idea of settling for Mr. Good Enough um, or someone who's not quite right that you have reservations about could be could just come back in the in the long run and you might have reservations that that sort of play out o- over a, a longer period of time that could be really damaging i mean separating children from parent father or mother is is you know not something that you want to sort of just walk yourself into so um i i'm not into settling for mr good enough i yeah <laughs> it's not for me <laughs> You don't want to walk towards those red flags, do you? No. If you can prevent it. Mm. So do you think there is anything wrong with choosing to be single? Not at all. I think it's great to choose to be single uh, and for people to have confidence in that decision. And I think the more people that do it and talk about it, then it it does give strength to that kind of category and and way of living. Uh, And it doesn't have to be forever. So we're all going to dip in and out of different sort of stages. I mean, even parenting, it gets intense and then the kids leave home and you've got your own sort of, you know, whole life back. So we are coming in and out of these sort of different categories and don't have to think it's going to be forever. But um, choosing to be single may be the absolute best thing for you at certain points in time. Um, And it may change unexpectedly. I mean, every so often I see like in the good weekend, They'll have the two of us and it'll be a couple that got married in their 90s in a nursing home that never expected to get married or never expected to recouple. So I think it can catch everyone off because we haven't talked much about love, but like love can just catch you, catch you. Oh my gosh, people can fall in love most unexpectedly, whether it's online, whether it's someone at work, whether it's, you know, your neighbor like me. Um, yeah, it can just happen. So love's sort of not something we can pin down and fully understand in a scientific way. So we don't need to leave some room for it to sort of, you know, appear. I love those stories where people meet later in life and live happily ever after. But I do really think that I wish more people would choose to be single and get to know themselves as opposed to relationship hop from one partner to the next. I feel like that's not celebrated enough. Yeah, well, I think the thing is that it can be very empowering uh, to become comfortable being single and you can end up being less fearful about what's ahead in life. Uh, I don't feel sort of so scared about my future. I imagine, you know, I'm going to live my life with my husband. But if things don't kind of work out like that, I know I can cope as well and I know what it's like to live on my own. I know that's not bad. So um, I think it can sort of reduce fears. And you're right, you get to really understand yourself and go, well, what is it I want to bring into my life? What What is it I like doing? So it's not merged. You even understand what food do I like eating? What shows do I like watching? How late do I like to stay up? When do I really like to get out of bed? You can lose the sense of that when you're a couple because it all becomes merged. And if you're merging right from when you're young in your early 20s, that's going to really lead to a different perception of yourself as to if you did a couple of years alone. Absolutely. 
And we've touched on this a bit, but what are some myths surrounding singledom? Yeah, well, I think um, the big ones for me were really around the idea of loneliness. And the one that still irritates me is that there might be something wrong with the person, that they've been rejected. And I just find that so frustrating because it's like someone could actually be in a really average marriage or even a bad marriage, and that's considered good or they're considered worthy and actually a single person is is, is not um, because they're not in a relationship. And I find this even kind of some hypocrisy in it even from within religion, for example, because like a nun and a priest in the Catholic Church are, are, don't get married yet are considered to have a life of service, a very good life. Um, so there's something to kind of take from that. It doesn't take being a parent, having a child, having a partner to have a good life. And actually you can have an amazing life and a real life of service and great contribution, uh, regardless of your status um, of whether you're coupled or not. A lot of my listeners have asked me to do an episode on women who don't want children. Why do you think there are so many negative perceptions of women who don't have or don't want children? Yeah, it's a it's a very, um, gosh, it's just a lot in the category um, to, to understand. And I think this um, category of single people, so sing, single women without children, um, can suffer a, a lot of um, discrimination and um, negative perceptions and very, very unfair, um, so considered not to be nurturing or not motherly. And it's just it's just not true. As we know, sing, single women in particular are more likely to look after their ageing parents and look after their family and help out their siblings with their kids um, so they they can be as nurturing, um, as loving, mothering uh, people. Uh, it challenges people's idea of what a woman is, what femininity is, what the female body is for. So it really does go to the core of some ideas people have about, um, you know, our biology even, uh, that that's what makes someone. So there, there are these really strong um, underlying things that go back through our history as humans that, that people attach to there. And they find the um, single woman or a woman without um a child so even if they're married like a couple without children suffer from from this kind of discrimination as well uh and i think it can be deeply offensive and very very um hard for for those women to kind of be understood um and for their female and their nurturing sort of side uh to be understood their femininity absolutely and a lot of my listeners write to me about their experience with narcissists i know you touched on this in your book why do you think encountering narcissists has become a common dating experience for so many people? Is it just a term that we're throwing around these days or is it actually legitimate? They do talk about how we, we do sort of flip around the term narcissism and um, flippantly, uh, but they also can be prolific on um, dating apps. So there's research into that. Uh, they get quite a hit from making someone fall for them um, and for like love bombing. Um, I think we see with the the Tinder swindler, if anyone's watched that, that you can get these characters. Um, and so that particular method of using an app or online dating can um, be attractive to the narcissist and multiple things. They, they need that kind of that hit of someone adoring them and, and building someone up. Yeah, narcissists are trouble. I think the sooner you can learn about narcissists, the better and read the identifications. There's literally a survey uh, that you can do to identify a narcissist. And I think it is really kind of as simple as that. And I think there is actually no cure. So 
you actually just need to remove narcissists from your life. Um, really? Yeah. I don't think there's any treatment for a narcissist. Yeah. But that's a particular psychological category. There might just be selfish people, in which case that's that's sort of different. But we do kind of bandy around these these terms. But people do have to be careful of, of narcissism and, you know, um, just because, you know, it could be really destructive to, to people's self-worth because they the, the narcissist goes through this sort of process of building someone up and then knocking them down. So being knocked down um, can, you know, be absolutely devastating for people. I was a narcissist magnet for years and I, was, I had to work on what was in me that was attracting these people into my life because, yeah, there was just no way to reason with them. Well, I feel so bad because when I read into um, the research around narcissism, they're more likely to be attracted to people that are emotionally stable and the relationships last longer with people who are emotionally stable because someone who's not would um, sort of freak out early, but uh, someone who's emotionally stable tries to understand and deal with the narcissist. Anyway, that, there's a lot to read. You can read about it. <laughs> Definitely. So given the rise of single people, why do you think there is still so much single shaming taking place? And particularly from women, because I see it all the time. Um, yes. Well, I think it it is still for women. I think it goes back to some of those um, issues around our idea of, of of women and what we expect from them in their lives. So um, we haven't really broken that that down um much yet i think men get a little bit more leeway but then again you know it's difficult for men as well um and uh they can feel the discrimination as well uh so i think i think it is changing even initiatives like you're doing with your podcast like my book um we get these different leaders who come up and and have a different type of family or a different type of family life uh, that we can sort of get more understanding because I think it's really about just understanding the different types of lives people have. Absolutely. This podcast is about creating the manual for the modern woman. What is one piece of advice you wish you knew earlier? Uh, one piece of advice, it's the same advice I'm still trying to take, which is uh, to listen. And I actually had... Um, this quote on my fridge, you you don't learn while you're talking. Uh, you don't learn while you're speaking. And the inverse of that is really to listen. And I think that's probably the best advice um, to having a better life, um, to feeling more connected, to understanding people, um, to being a better friend, better parent, is to not do all the talking to, and to do some listening. Such good advice. Claire, what's next for you? Uh, what's next besides sort of, you know, managing my blended family, my pro professional life, my career, but I am writing a fiction book. So I'm writing a fiction book, which is a combination of, I have my book one, which is around, um, about, you know, single people, but I also have a book, um, called a matter of trust, which is about ethics and finance. And I'm writing a book, um, a fiction book that is a combination of those themes. So one of my characters is single in, in my book. So that's my next endeavor that's on the side um, of, of my life. <laughs> well, I loved reading uh, your other book, One. Uh, so I very much look forward to when this next book comes out. Claire, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for coming on Single at 30. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to this Single 30 episode, How to Value the Single Life with Claire Payne. My modern women, don't forget to sign up to the first ever Single 30 online event, Why Attracting Healthy Love Starts With You, being held by psychologist Rachel Tocasio and I this October via the Single 30 Facebook group. I love you all and we'll see you this weekend with another episode of Sunday Dating Scaries.